I'm showing up. The reason I'm writing this work and that I'm asking you to do this work is because if we don't do it, if you don't do it, it's, it's not going to get done. And people and our lives and our community are dependent upon them. And that's, and that's okay to say that we are emotionally vested, that we're vulnerable, that we're hurt and that we're harmed when, when this is not done well or it's not done right. And that we want to reconstitute or reconsider this space because we have some vested interest in, in doing better work. I'm Andrew Seligson. I'm Emily Shields. And I'm Marisol Morales, and this is Compact Nation Podcast. Welcome, everyone. How's everybody doing today? Yeah, I've already regaled you guys a little bit with my snow travails, which our listeners are probably just going to be bored hearing about weather, but I did have to be pushed out of snowbanks several times in my car this morning, so... I like that you added in your car because I was just picturing people pushing you out of snow. Banks. <laughs> you just me flopped over yeah. in a snowbank needing yeah. help. That'd be worse, yeah. probably. Yeah. But we're about to get some snow here. I'm hoping it does not prevent me from heading to the truck in gathering, which is where I'm off to tomorrow. The Research University Civic Engagement Network uh, meeting at the University of Delaware. So I always look forward to that group focus this year on engaged scholarship and an opportunity to learn about some of the great work going on at the University of Delaware, which has been uh, kind of intensifying an already significant commitment to public good work of all kinds. So that should be fun. And as I said, I just hope we don't get grounded. So we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was in California this past week uh, and it was a little cold, uh, chilly, but, you know, cold is like... 40s, 50s, uh, not the polar vortex that I experienced the week before. Um, but I came back to my father's car getting totaled by a big tree branch that fell from our tree uh, because of the ice storm the night before. So I have some car shopping to do with my dad later this week as casualties of winter in Chicago. Yikes. Yeah, not good. But at least he didn't park my car in front of the tree. <laughs> there, so. there you go. <laughs> His car's a little older. It could it could be replaced. All right, so we'll all survive this. We'll get through. Someday it'll be warm again. I'm just I just say that to myself over and over every February. So just yeah, I think offer that uh, to you. You're on pretty solid ground. Like a lot of years in the past, it has gotten warmer after February. So I think it's likely this year. Yeah, but who knows. All right. Well, we have a wonderful episode in honor of Black History Month. We had the opportunity to have a conversation with four black scholars in community engagement. Really excited to share um, our conversation and our intimate talk about what it's like to do this work in this field. Uh, we have Joseph Tucker Edmonds. He's an assistant professor of Africana Studies and Religious Studies at IUPUI. Zara Med. She's an assistant professor of politics at St. Mary's College in California. Nicole Webster, who's an associate professor of youth and international development at Penn State, and my dear friend, Tim Eatman, who's the inaugural dean of the Honors Living Learning Community and uh, faculty at Rutgers, New York. So um, had the opportunity to talk with them um, this past week and um, 
yeah, it's a special, special conversation. And so let's go to the interview now. So first, thank you all for uh, agreeing to be part of this podcast. So if you can first start off with like introductions, who you are, what you're doing, and like what brought you into this field. I'm Tim Eatman, and um, I'm here now in year two at uh, Rutgers University, Newark. Um, I'm the inaugural dean of the Honors Living Learning Community here. I'm an educational sociologist. Um, I'm principally concerned about issues of equity in higher education, but probably my most uh, sort of impactful research has been around how we reward faculty who do community engage knowledge making. And so that brings with it a whole set of questions um, that if you're serious about answering um, that larger question, gets you in a space of um, looking at issues of equity, um, not only among students, but among faculty, you know, who are the people that are advancing the most uh, uh, compelling uh, community engaged research, right? Um, you know, if we think about different models of service, you know, uh, what do uh, black and brown faculty advising loads look like over and against? I mean, you know, you know the questions, um, but these questions um, intrigue me greatly um, and are really flavored with a, a, a sort of deep um, um, pull to make sure that the humanities and the arts are not bracketed out of the conversation. And um, that really is important to me. And it is um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the work that I've been able to do with the national consortium called Imagining America, Artists and Scholars in Public Life, which has really for the last 20 years been uh, pushing on this question of um, where humanities and arts are in the context of community engaged work and research and publicly engaged scholarship. And I have to tell you that um, even though I'm a, you know, quantoid social scientist that likes to, you know, explain variants, um, my, my greater sensibilities have been really, um, you know, appealed to um, and um, uh, research sensitivities awakened by this understanding of the power of the humanities and the arts, the methodologies, the strategies. And, and um, I think that that is something that is um, not really too confusing when we think about the journey that people's uh, traditionally underrepresented peoples in the academy have had to navigate. Uh, in this space. So I'll, I'll stop there. I'm hoping, uh, Mighty Soul, that I may have uh, touched on some of the uh, questions that you are posing, but I'm really eager uh, to uh, get to know each of you and, and hear more about your work. My name is Zara Ahmed. I'm a, and right now I'm an assistant professor at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. Um, this is just, uh, I'm entering into my second semester, so I was previously at UC Irvine, running the Civic and Community Engagement Office there. And I was also teaching at Fullerton College. Um, and I'm a political scientist, so that's, I'm an assistant professor of political science, and I was teaching political science at Fullerton College. 
And uh, before that, I got my PhD from UC Irvine in political science, and I studied service learning. Um, I was just kind of, I was coming from a social work background. I got my MSW from Georgia State in Atlanta. And I just, I, I worked as a community-based, kind of a, a community organizer slash social worker for a nonprofit there. And I realized that I knew a tad bit more about the political system than my clients, but, but not much. And not so, much. <laughs> so I felt the need to go back to school. And that was my motivation for choosing political science because I wanted to have a, a firmer grasp of how the political system works so that I could then engage in more informed and more powerful advocacy and systems change. And so sure. going to UC Irvine though, I'm from Southern California, but moving, I had never been to Orange County and moving from Atlanta, Georgia to Orange County to Irvine of all places, it was quite the culture shock. And so I kind of went through the several crisis moments where I, I thought constantly about, you know, quitting the program. I asked myself, is this the right place for me? Because the assumptions that were being made in this political science program were not community, not only not community based, not community oriented, but many of the, the, the comments and attitudes were not respectful of communities at all. And so since I came with this, with, with the heart for doing better community work and more critical community work, I was kind of faced with this question of whether I was in the right place. And um, one of the things that was helpful for me was, you know, I got a notebook and I just started kind of writing, well, why did I come back to school? Why am I here? What are my, you know, what do I think I'm doing here? And what do I think I can get out of this program? Whether they mean to give it to me or not, whether they mean for me to, to do this kind of work or not. Mm. And that was very empowering. Yeah. And so I just kind of started, it also started me on this process of turning the lens inward so that rather than just thinking about kind of what kind of research I wanted to do and, and kind of using school as a, a mechanism to get to the next level, I started interrogating the schooling practices that I was a part of and also using that to think about, well, what kind of educator liberatory educator do I want to be? And that was empowering as well. And so that led me to, you know, by when I got to the point of doing my dissertation, I went back and forth. I had some ideas of doing a more kind of critically focused um, study of community engagement in higher education. But I also felt that I'm, I'm pretty systematic and I wanted to be fair. And I felt that I didn't know enough about of what was currently going on in community engagement mm. for me to start making assumptions and saying, this is what we need to do in the field. So mm. I kind of scaled it back and I just did a, I, I, I framed it as kind of a policy analysis of service learning in three different universities. And um, what I learned from that though, one of my main takeaways that really informs what I do now is that, and the sh it informs the shift that I made is that many of the, administrators of these programs mean well and they hope that students have these transformative experiences but it's kind of like a black box and 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 the program itself doesn't necessarily intentionally try to create a space for students regardless of color to have a transformative experience to kind of understand not only the micro but the meso and the macro levels of interaction um, that 
influence what they're doing, regardless of what the community service is. So that influenced my shift from just kind of plain old service learning to, to what I do now, which is critical community engagement. And uh, as a political scientist, I really think, Manny saw what you were saying, that's been one of my key um, questions. How do I uh, create spaces for critical community engagement in a way where I'm being honest and transparent and my and I'm creating a space so that my students can actually have a transformative experience mm-hmm. and come in with whatever questions or biases or, or reluctance that they might have, but leave kind of having an experience of building community, not necessarily or not only off campus, but on campus and, and you know, kind of in the space that we create. So I'll stop there. I'm Joseph Tucker Edmonds. I'm at IUPUI. I'm an assistant professor of religious studies and Africana studies there. I study um, new religious movements, particularly alternative Christianities. And I come to this work from the perspective of, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, kind of being trained as a more traditional scholar and then transitioning into what I understood or understand as kind of public scholarship. And that means for me, um, scholarship that is co-constituted by, you know, a person that's embedded in the university and then some group of folks or some community of folks that are embedded outside of the university and are doing the work that I'm interested in kind of uncovering, engaging and talking about. And um, um, I really got involved in, you know, kind of public scholarship and public teaching as a way to, kind of, to as a way to respond to some of the, the bigger questions that I had about the work that I was looking at. You know, why? Uh, not, uh, you know, why are black folks engaging in, re- in certain religious communities? What do these religious communities accomplish for them? How do they create programming and, and literature and, um, and kind of theorization around the work that they're doing? And I wanted to both test these ideas as well as to engage in the communities that were producing them. Um, and this was important to me as a person that was involved in many of these communities as a as a practitioner and as a participant, but also important to me as a person uh, that really wanted to kind of think about these questions on the border of, you know, kind of traditional scholarship, on the border of African-American religious studies and African-American theology, um, and on the border of all, you know, on a number of fields. Um, uh, And then secondarily, as I kind of got more involved in public scholarship and public teaching, is thinking about how we teach other folks how to do this work, right? When you're coming out of traditional, um, you know, research programs, you often have to learn how to do this or you have to find a mentor who has to kind of retrain you how to really do public scholarship thoughtfully and responsibly and rigorously, right? And so now I'm saying that I want to be able to teach that in my classroom in a way that I'm teaching my undergrads and my graduate students how to do this from the beginning of their research kind of surprise and their beginning of their research engagement so that they start off with this as one of many options with which to do research, with which to think about um, how we and the academy can do our work. And my takeaway from that is that it's been um, really transformative for my students to see research really responding to their to their questions and to their community's questions and figuring out how to then connect with those community folks, not just to give them answers, but to co-constituate or co-create answers together, co-create theory together, co-create responses and ideas in, um, in a shared space. And, you know, all of a sudden, these, these sacrifices and all of these um, real... Um, 
burdens that they're taking on as being sometimes first generation college students are meaningful and uh, and really impactful now that they can now that they really can see the the impact and the far reach of their work and 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 my work as well. Hi, I'm Nicole Webster. I'm an associate professor at Penn State University, and my work um, actually sits in, in a very unique place because I'm actually in the College of Agricultural Sciences. And so uh, many of the students and young people that I engage with are looking at issues from a science perspective. But my department happens to be the only social science department. So my work centers around this notion of youth development. Um, and how young people develop socially, emotionally, um, you know, physically, all those things that we know that are important um, across the lifespan. And where my civic engagement or service learning work kind of fits in that um, is trying to understand how when young people are engaged civically in society, how does that then begin to impact their development? So I want, I'm trying to understand, well, when a young person is engaged, um, let's say on a board or in a space where they are a civic participant, what does that mean? How do they identify themselves? How are they uh, looking at um, life through the lens of being a person who is helping to make decisions or helping to inform policy? So that's kind of the, the framework um, from which I'm operating. And I, when I first entered into this field, I came in under the guise of uh, service learning. So service learning is this, you know, um, I would say a methodology. And I had a pivoting point when I realized that service learning looks very different for people who look like me. Mm-hmm. And many of the students that I was starting to come in contact with who were students of color said, but service learning, I've been doing service learning. Is that what you're calling it? (laughs) (laughs) I've been doing this because um, mommy and daddy had me going to church and doing these kinds of activities. And it was at that point, I was like, you know what? We, in whatever, you know, community that we identify with, we have been doing this. And so for me, it was a deeper connection to being civically engaged um, because if I look at the, the historical lens of um, people who have struggled in society hasn't been service le- service learning is that's not a terminology that's been used but yes we've been civically engaged we've been on the forefront the back front and in the middle um, and so that was kind of the aha moment for me and then um, being able to sit down with students, who said, but I want to um, learn from people who have already been doing this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that yeah. notion of civic, being civically engaged, and I think um, you mentioned this before about co-creating knowledge, but I would put even one other word in there, co-creating um, and using indigenous knowledge or yeah. using historical knowledge in order to, to construct those stories. So for me, my I think my trajectory has definitely changed. Service learning, I would definitely say, is a methodology that we can use, um, but it's not the end-all, be-all. And I think that if we really want to move students to being change agents in their communities, we definitely have to think more critically, um, add more depth th- to these experiences, and most importantly, 
people like ourselves need to be leading them. So I always tell my students, we need, you need to understand the FUBU story. And when I tell them the FUBU story, it's like the light bulb goes off and they're like, oh, share the, share the FUBU story with our listeners. Okay. So the FUBU story is basically the story about the, the clothing brand line, FUBU, which is for us by us. And so Damien Sims and you can now have a brain. I can't remember the other person, but the three of them said, you know, we want to, we want a brand that not only represents us, but is designed by us, marketed by us and sold by us. And so they took this whole, um, what I would call the hip hop brand. And they said, this is us, this is who we are, but we're not going to allow anyone to, um, basically tell us what it should be, what it shouldn't be, where it should be sold. And Mm -hmm. so that, that notion of branding, understanding who, you know, who you're marketing to, um, what we like and how we like to wear it. They, they, they brought that to the forefront. So when I tell students this story, and that's a very short story, um, but that FUBU mentality is what I want my students to have when they go out life. Thank you all for, for sharing, um, who you are and, um, sort of the, the, the type of work that you're engaging in. Um, you all talked quite a bit about, um, this idea of public scholarship, transformation, empowerment, agency, co-creation. Um, where are our voices in the field of community engagement? The floor is open. Okay, so I'll start off and maybe this will just kick us off. Um, Oftentimes, I think that we are not necessarily writing about it from a scholarly perspective, but more from a reflective perspective. This is what happened when we take or took students into um, a community or we're partnering with a colleague to write about um, what happened in the community or we're sought after because it might be a community of color. And so we might have some connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that we need to, to take a more critical look about how we are constructing those narratives in the, in the, in the, in the discourse, because I don't see that happening, but I see it more as a reflection or a reflective paper or a reflective piece, but not necessarily research or scholarship. It's there, but very limited. So I went and um, I'm actually working on a couple of papers. So I just pulled a couple of the books because I've, um, I realized that, you know, kind of building on what Nicole said, it doesn't, if I'm looking for keywords, you know, service learning or critical service learning that I'm not necessarily going to find us. But um, part of what, part of kind of one direction that I'm, I'm looking at more and more is contemplative practice and social justice. Mm-hmm. And, and how are and culturally relevant, culturally competent contemplative practices. So going beyond kind of this whitewashing of mindfulness, which would have you think that, you know, it was created in the United States by a white woman. The, um, thinking about how our practices that, you know, that we that we have known that we know kind of we have different ways of being. So it's not necessarily that we read them in a book. They're practices that have been passed down or that we just kind of know in our bones that work for us. And thinking specifically about, like I said, not not just critical community engagement, but thinking about social justice, activists and activism. And um, 
So one of the one of the books that I found that was really helpful, actually, when I was doing my dissertation, I went back to Ella Baker and her form of community organizing. Mm-hmm. And I read um, Barbara Ransby. Yes. And, and that was just like my Bible. But even that, because I think that was kind of one of the first books going beyond, of course, Paulo Freire was very um, pivotal. And then um, The Miseducation of the Negro was always one of my father's favorite books. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of foundational, but then Ransby's book was really helpful because I was, I mean, I was literally able to see, you know, this isn't just something I feel, this is what we do. This is, and this is how she did it. And so it, it really did serve as a real model, a concrete substantive model for me to say, here's what I see going on, but also here's how I, here are the possibilities. Here's kind of the, my recommendation, and and here's how I would kind of shift and change the work. Um, so why 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 is that not part of the like community engagement canon that that we look towards? We're always quoting or referring back to the same dudes, right? right? How, how do how do we bring that into the sort of canon of of community engagement literature? Like the way I just framed it is that it's not necessarily, you know, if I if I put in the key words, the common key words, it wouldn't necessarily come up. But once I found it, it I felt like it was then up to me to to own it and to, you know, even in the course of using it for my dissertation, there's kind of a question by my committee members. Well, is this, you know, this doesn't necessarily fit. And so it was up to me to make the argument that it does fit. Mm-hmm. And I think by, and so, and then by, by integrating it into my work, it becomes, and then, you know, having my students read it. So I had my students read a chapter about Ella Baker and we're sitting here talking about it and they're, and they're comparing, you know, this, um, the charismatic leadership model versus, you know, Ella Baker's model, which I told them the quote by her, strong people don't need strong leaders. And so there, it is an intention decentralized model. And then, you know, this group of students here in Moraga, you know, in Northern California, they leave my class knowing about some Ella Baker and and understanding that it is it is just as, you know, as strong an academic model as, you know, another piece that they might have read that they could have downloaded from JSTOR. So I feel like it's up to me to kind of be open to exploring and then bring those bring those pieces in and then own them because only by doing that will they ever become, you know, kind of commonly cited um, pieces of the canon. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that's so important for me in terms of my understanding is that we've got to be involved in the practice of decolonizing the university. We've got to think about how the structure of the university validates or privileges certain types of discourse, certain types of speech, certain types of scholarship. And then that that filters down not only for what we do in our research, not only for what we teach in the classroom, you know, talking about canon or curriculum, but even the, the practices of these offices that are theoretically or ostensibly tasked with doing some of this service engagement and service learning work. And I think it's that division, which is ultimately very problematic, that we've, that we've decided that there are these two sides of the university, that if I'm doing research, if I'm, in, if I'm involved in the academic enterprise, then I don't have any responsibility or any real commitment or, you know, um, I'm not going to be assessed on my, my 
my public work, my engagement of service, my critical engagement of thinkers outside or on the periphery of my work. And we've got to do, we've got to demand differently. We've got to demand from ourselves mm-hmm. that as we teach and as we produce scholarship, that we look at this as a part of what we have to kind of go through. We've got to demand it of our colleagues. And like I said uh, in my earlier comments, I'm trying to teach this to my students so that they begin to see this as a norm. That if you're going to do research, if you're thinking about how we are attacking or approaching this problem that you can't just only go to JSTOR, as Zara said so powerfully, because that's not the universe of, um, of ideas or research or interventions that are out there. And if that's the only place that you land, or if you only land in that place, and we've kind of miseducated you, right, going back to Wilson, on how to do this work, and we've kind of bought into a colonial system of education that privileges certain kinds of discourses and certain kinds of thoughts, and it's going to constantly lead us to not liberating um, our neighborhoods, not neighbor our communities, and for the and the students that we say that we're called to serve. I, I um, I'm, I feel it's so so nourished by by this conversation, and Marisol, I want to salute you for pulling us together to uh, just just have this space. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really struck by the perspectives that my, my colleagues have shared around um, really the kind of intellectual entrepreneurial uh, posture that we need to take uh, as uh, scholars uh, from um, the ranks of those uh, traditionally underrepresented in higher education. And I really do believe that um, we, we're um, most prudent if we're seeing it through the lens of being harbingers or entrepreneurs hmm. to take the field in directions that uh, it needs to be. And one of the things that struck me in the last few comments w- w- was this sort of not only this notion of a deep need to gesture and in fact reach into and touch the pulse of communities, right, of, of indigenous or community-based knowledge, um, but, but something that comes along with that, right, which is a kind of a, a sort of a deep humanity, right, um, that is not afraid of, you know, the, the emotions that we carry, right, as, as human beings, even as we are uh, thought leaders and scholars, right? And we know that, you know, in the ivory tower, you know, that's a tough thing, right, because you're not biased. I mean, you know, you are biased, right? If you're sort of uh, allowing any of that to flavor or or color the way that you're thinking. Um, When I was directing uh, Imagining America, I I searched hard to come up with a a phrase, uh, a sort of a a short kind of mantra that would help um, to articulate for me in a moment's notice a, a... a sense of that posture, which you you all have been articulating. And I I talk about creating spaces in academe where hearts and spirits meet minds for deep, impactful, sustained knowledge-making and healing. And I can't tell you uh, how many times I've said that, but it, it really goes to this challenge of us bringing something entrepreneurial, but also very human into this space of publicly engaged scholarship and having really the courage to uh, rattle uh, this, uh, this sort of deep container of colonialism, as, as has already been said, um, on the way forward. 
wanted to add one one thing. I think um, a central theme to what's been discussed also is this notion of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of times we don't we don't honor that. If you're in this space, you are going to have to. I know that's right. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to be not only vulnerable, but um, recognize that that is a part of the work. And if we cannot show that face um, to our students, how do we expect them to be empathetic and and show sympathy and show compassion (laughs) in which we are taking them into, or even our colleagues. Um, and I think that that speaks to a whole nother subject in terms of sometimes individuals that we work with that are taking students into these spaces um, may not necessarily be um, displaying those types of characteristics with their own colleagues, but yet they are expecting to have a transformative experience with these students. So I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) I just, that made me think I'm getting ready for my spring classes right now and I'm about to teach intro to American politics. It starts Monday. And I was, you know, I, I want to use my classes kind of as a, a learning laboratory and actually, you know, I've, Um, I'm thinking of trying to write a little bit about this different model because we have a a civic and community engagement office on campus, but since I haven't gotten as familiar with them yet, I have built in, you know, just kind of opportunities for my students to engage um, in different ways. And, but one of the things that I think is really important is, and over time I've done more and more of this, but it just became clear to me that vulnerability that I have to be upfront with them to let them know that this is a laboratory for all of us, that I don't, I am not and cannot be kind of a cheerleader for American government, American politics kind of uncritically. Mm -hmm. And so in teaching the class and in, you know, creating opportunities for my students to become engaged and to kind of, you know, really, I want them to go through this, you know, the, the, the formation through praxis, through, you know, kind of taking in the information, learn, learning, engaging in action, and then dialoguing with one another. And then hopefully we all kind of increase our level of political sophistication over time. But I have to be clear with them that I'm a, that this is a process for me as well. And so this, so I understand when, yes, we hear these calls to get engaged, but then there's that voice in my head that says, it's not going to make any difference. There's everybody is so corrupt. This system, the only thing that will solve it is to burn it to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes I don't think there's an answer. But I feel like that connects with my students because I know that they sometimes feel like that. But actually what makes me hopeful is my engagement with them. And so I just think that vulnerability is really a key piece. And that's something that it enriches what we do as black scholars. And there are other scholars, you know, who who I'm sure bring that as well. But 
rather than it being something that I have to kind of separate from or yeah. be ashamed of, tamp down, leave that at the door because it's not going to be seen as professional. I'm embracing it. And it, it, it is a process because it's kind of a continuous revelation that there are additional levels, you know, there, there's more that I'm learning about myself and that means more to explore and to share. But I think that's a, a really key piece. That's something that's very important, I think. Can, can I just jump in there again? Yeah. Can I just jump in there again? Because I think what you're talking about, Zara, is, is really kind of an, an art, right? It, it, and and it, it is the, the kind of thing that we, we should not think disparagingly to frame it that way. You know, there's, there's an art of sort of to pursuing the framing of our work in, in, in those ways. And, and, you know, I, I know you're probably at the end of uh, getting your books together for the syllabus and all, but are you familiar with Richard Eaton's uh, work? No. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you might just, you know, check out In Search of the Black Fantastic by Richard Eaton. I don't know if anyone has, um, you know, seen that work, but he, he really, uh, you know, takes great pains to talk about Black scholars in a broad way, many of them artists. You know, he talks about Ruby D, and and he talks about you know Adam Clayton Powell going to New York City as a stage actor. Yeah, before he gets into that civic and get yeah man yeah right. He talks about Malcolm X's comic timing and I mean you know he read Ella Baker's you know sort of art of 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 uh, organize. I mean it's really powerful stuff, but I really. I, I, I think a lot of times when we frame it as an art that, you know, it gets disparaged as something unworthy uh, to be in our conversations. Mm-hmm. I, I, told, I totally agree. I mean, I love that. I love, I mean, when I heard your, your tagline, Tim, when you said, you know, about that, you know, that, that this goal was healing, it, it struck mm-hmm. me, right? Because it's often a, a framing or a term that we don't, that we, that we don't associate with, you know, with the, with the academy, with the, with the university, right? That, um, but I often talk to my students. I mean, all of this resonates with me because I use the, the, the word urgent all the time. Like, yes, sir. <laughs> I, love, I love that line from Love Jones when he's like, it's, it's urgent like a, you know, you know but, but it is, like, this is urgent. The reason I'm here, the reason I'm showing up, the reason I'm writing this work and that I'm asking you to do this work is because if we don't do it, if you don't do it, it's, it's not going to get done. And people and our lives and our community are dependent Dependent upon that. And that's and that's okay to say that we are emotionally vested, that we're vulnerable, that we're hurt, and that we're harmed when when this is not done well or it's not done right. And that we want to reconstitute or reconsider this space because we have some vested interest in it doing in, in, in doing better work and in doing work that will actually lead to that healing that you're talking about, doing to work that will actually lead to um, a different vision of the world that we live in. And um, uh, I, I feel like my students get excited about that because, I mean, they understand, like, that, this, that, they're, that they're here and that they've been placed and embedded in these universities because people have entrusted them with something. And for many of my first generation students, it does feel urgent. And I'm, and I'm trying to kind of give them language to deal with that anxiety, with that, you know, with that, you know, that, that disconnection in some ways, and to try to connect that to the work that they can do and the way that they can use these resources that they now have access to in the university to kind of move forward and to change and to change their lives and to change the communities that they find themselves in. Right. I mean, I think like 
the piece around vulnerability that we're hurt and we're harmed when this work is not done well um, very much speaks to to things that that I have seen as a community partner as a, a practitioner in the field and and now in in this role that I have uh, at campus compact when I talk to scholars and community engagement professionals of color um, that hurt right that level of uh, vulnerability the fear of being authentic that often arises um, and where are those spaces created for for that healing to take place because that healing won't necessarily take place at the institution and so I guess my question for you all is where do you find your healing space to continue to, to do this to do this work. Our institutions were not set up for us, right? In fact, they were set up to exclude us. And so as we're creating spaces for different forms of knowledge to come in, for um, there to be a diverse student body, um, diverse faculty, we always get the questions about whether folks are qualified, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Double questioning um, us and our work and the rigor right? These, these trigger words, these coded, uncoded words uh, and language that oftentimes sets it up for um, exclusion to, to take place. So where do you all find your, your healing space? You know, b- b- before I, I talk about my healing space, I want to uh, uh, throw another flame on that urgency question mm-hmm. and the, 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 the challenge of healing. This is a, a, an email that one of my students received. Um, he is now uh, at Harvard Law School and um, finishing his first term. And someone in his class created a fake Gmail account and sent him sent him this email, which he immediately sent to me because he's my mentee, right? And it reads, it's 35 words. He says, you know you don't belong here. You're just here because of affirmative action. Why even try? Everyone at HLS or Harvard Law School thinks you're a joke, but I guess your section is lucky to have a curve boost. Mm. So if you wanted to write an email that plays on all of the dimensions of stereotype threat, that's the email you would write. <laughs> and so to this question of urgency, we see forms of that. Right you know, both explicitly and implicitly. And, you know, one of the things I know about darkness is that it can never be ameliorated with more darkness. So that's why some people read me wrong. Now, I'm a brother from Harlem, New York, right? I know I I almost look 100, I got all this gray hair, but that's not my point. My point is I know that in order for us to really do the tough ameliorative work that we need to do. We need to take Mighty Soul's question very seriously. How is it that we stir up the best of who we are Mm -hmm. and not allow people to pull us down to where they were, to get us in the modes of this, which say, this wasn't made for you. You have no space here. Mm -hmm. And my hope in part is in my faith practice and my families and my colleagues, which are expanding even with this, but it is also in this idea that the academy is malleable enough <laughs> mm. that I could even be in it. D- yeah. d- does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Thank you for saying that. 
Um, some of us can't say that <laughs> because I, maybe we don't have enough lived experiences or just the spaces that we're in. You see how she called me old again? We don't have that. <laughs> so what I would say is I would challenge us. So there's five of us on this call, right? Or this podcast. Um, why is it, why is it that it's taken us this amount of time to just convene this small group and begin to populate the discourse with our work and our experiences as a collective? Um, I think sometimes we are maybe, I don't know, I don't know if the word is afraid, um, but we don't take those chances to put our voices, um, our ex- lived experiences in, in, in writing. And so I think that we need to think about how we can create spaces where we co-publish, where we're doing things together that we know, we know work in this space and that are needed because how are we going to train or even discuss collaboration partnerships um, with our students if they don't see us practicing that themselves. I had a graduate student who asked me, well, where are the other black scholars? Where are the black scholars in this space? And I said, well, (laughs) right. (laughs) Think about that because we're, we're, we're um, getting ready to expand on this whole notion of black consciousness um, and identity in the, in the field of civic engagement. So we're using Fanon and some other folks to kind of unpack those things. And she said, well, are any other scholars, and you know, at this point, scholars of color writing about that? I said, mm, yeah, I don't think so. So that is a challenge and a call to you three, four, that are here today, that we need to do something about it because it is urgent. Yeah, well, I just got to Campus Compact, so we will. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know you are on. It's happening, it's happening. (laughs) But no, I mean, I think that that's an important piece, right? And that, um, and also I think this bringing together of uh, scholars of, of, of color and the ways in which we support and understand our distinctive communities, but also our, um, common experience in this, in this space. Right. And so what it looks like to navigate, um, those different spaces, um, especially when the framework is about, uh, competition amongst each other, right. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, division. And so where do we, where do we, um, have to do the work to begin to break those down. Yeah. I love the idea, you know, Carrie Ann Rockamore, yeah, I'm sure many of you have heard of her, you know, uh, uh, faculty diversity and, and that kind of work that she's been doing. But um, one of the things that I think that for my spaces of healing, um, what I need and what I try to create, and I talked to this to my students, I said, I want to check in with you early and often, right? Mm-hmm. That if we're really going to create relationship, if we're going to have sustainable community, if we're going to build things that can kind of reach outside of us, right, and not just impact us, but impact others, then we've got to be committed to 
some real radical practices of, of, of vulnerability, of engagement, of accountability, of, of being present with one another, of, of, of being honest about how we're doing and where we're doing and why we're doing the work that we're doing, right? And so I try to pull my students out of this practice of like, I'm going to talk to you about your paper when you turn it into me, right? So I even, even in the classroom, you know, I'm trying to kind of move us away from this kind of end product mentality, right? That we become valuable as a, as a scholar or as a thinker when I get my article to you or if I send my book to you, Nicole, or to, you know, to you, Tim, that's when I have value. That's when I have cachet. But we need to create spaces. And those are healing spaces in my mind where we can be fragmented and broken and incomplete and unsure, but we can still be valued and validated and seen and engaged. That's when I'm, that's when I'm made whole, right? right? Not when I have to prove and have an, an ego and, and all this other stuff. And then, you know, but w- w- in those other moments, um, I need that. I need that from y'all. I need that from my family. I need that. And I'm trying to teach that to my students. Yeah. And not judged. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Tim, I know you need to go. So I'd like you to share about like your healing, uh, where you find your healing space. Yeah. First and foremost is in my faith practice, right? I mean, um, and I know academics don't like to talk about that, but yo, (laughs) I I need to cultivate the life of the spirit within Timothy Kenneth Eatman. That is the most important thing. I cannot face my family, my students, anybody without that. And that is critical. And uh, I have to tell you, you know, Part of the challenge of being in the academy and in a secular academy is feeling some kind of way about the fact that I, I, I walk in, in that power, right? That's that's even my power, right? Um, and I, I really have uh, fought to, um, you know, embrace that over the years. Uh, the, the other thing that I'll say is a network, um, you know, uh, behind me on the wall here is uh, a poster, um, you know, from a book that I was uh, uh, published in in 1996 called Brothers of the Academy. There were 22 mm-hmm. black uh, and brown, you know, black and Latino brothers who got together and wrote this book with stylists. This is before John Van Nuren was doing a whole lot of books. And we spent time together. And in fact, you know, it has now grown into this international colloquium on black males in education. I won't play it all out, but I will tell you that that nerve, that network is a healing space. In fact, we called it the Underground Railroad of the Academy. No, serious. Because yo, I could hit up you know you know Larry Rowley and you know Jelana Jackson or you know Ron Roshan who's about to be a president. And what do we do? Well, we also said, wait, what's up with the sisters? And help to establish which is a thriving network called Sisters of the Academy. Some of you may know about it. They do these badass, you know, research boot camps to help folks get over the hump. I mean, and, and other stuff too. And so the network stuff is really, really critical. Again, it's second to the faith practice that, you know, you sort of connects me, um, you know, with uh, my creator and, and, and my family. The other thing that, that I would say is, you know, uh, recognizing that, you know, slavery is not a part of my experience anymore. So what do I mean by that? My parents reminded me that we are, we 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 did that, and so if I gotta immediately stereotype somebody because their skin is white, like they against me, and I don't you know approach them in a way that helps me you know see their humanity and let them prove to me that they have a certain sort of mentality. I'm a slave, 
And I'm not going to walk with that mentality. And so there are many people in the academy who have been a great healing benefit to me who are not black or brown. What do I mean? You know, uh, I was going up for tenure at Syracuse University. I was a, before me, there were two black men in 106 years who had gone up for tenure in the School of Education at Syracuse. Of all the people I know that like me, slap my back, laugh, you know what I mean? The senior scholars, I'm not talking about the brothers who were trying to get through themselves, right? It was a white man, a white a friend. He's my brother. And, and you may know him. His name is John Saltmarsh. He said, Eatman, come to Boston. Bring your worries, bring your laptop, bring your plans. We're going to map out a plan, a tenure plan for you. You hear what I'm saying? That ain't no joke. (laughs) And I would have missed that if in my sort of framework around what healing spaces look like and mean. That's why it's so critical for me to us, for us to look at this, this notion of heart and spirit and mind and how they connect toward knowledge making. So I could I could go on and on um, about that. But I do want to get I want to fit that in there somewhere, because I think the the in this nihilistic, you know, uh, in the ethos of this nihilistic time, you know, we're being pushed to this this kind of of of, of way of, of, you know, not being able to receive and give to each other what we need, regardless of where we come from, regardless of what our gender identity is. Or, I mean, do you follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and so if you really if you're talking about real healing, these are at least the three top things that I would talk about. Faith practice, sort of a wider network. And I don't know how you even frame the last one, but it's something about not being you know, uh, in, encapsulated by the uh, uh, pervasive and foregoing frames of, of opening ourselves up to each other's humanity. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I was thinking about the email that, um, you know, that I'm a student. And it's interesting because right before you showed it, I made a note. I said, you know, both us and our students suffer from imposter syndrome because as Joseph was kind of, you know, describing the urgency and the the fact that creating, telling your students that kind of we're going to do this differently and we need to connect on, on a, not, on, not only on a regular basis, but on a deeper level. I was remembering how I felt as a student and I know that that would, that would try to, that would assuage some of right. that and some of that, that because that feeling of responsibility that I feel now as a professor, I felt it as an undergrad, I felt it as a grad student getting my master's and I felt it as a grad student getting my PhD, that connection to my community, that desire to, you know, to engage in work that was bigger than myself, you know, kind of honoring and respecting all those who came before me. Um, And I know that our students feel that too. And so I think as we kind of open up and evolve and push, you know, the boundaries and as we're willing to kind of, you know, be brave, but also to, to kind of find healing in the usual spaces, but also in the unusual spaces, we also serve as, as really important grounding mechanisms for our students, regardless of color, but especially students of color, because they are feeling a lot of those, those feelings too. And for me, my healing comes from, it's kind of counterintuitive, but acknowledging that 
I've always felt that, you know, like when I, I let my hair go natural a long time ago now, like 20 years ago. But I remember when I first did it, it was other black women who kind of whispered in my ear and said, aren't you worried about getting a job? Aren't you concerned that, that you know, about what white people are going to think? And I remember saying, <laughs> they know I'm black. natural hair or not is not going to make them forget who I am but what it does do is it empowers me it grounds me so that when I show up in a space I'm not even worried about what other people are thinking when they see me but I feel (laughs) alignment I feel a connection again not just with myself but with those who came before me and with those who will come after and it's not so much about a hairstyle, it's about whatever we need to do to feel that, that alignment, to feel that connection. And so I think the more I do that, and the more I kind of encourage my students to kind of find, and we create those spaces together where we get to be whole people together, yes. regardless mm-hmm. of what the topic is of the class. We get to be whole people in the classroom. And my hope is that you know, like that kind of email, I'm not surprised that it would get sent, but my hope is that a student would kind of feel that reservoir of power and strength, that resilience, you know, that we all, we all kind of hope to have, but it's, it's elusive. It's hard to, you know, there's no formula for it, but my hope is that our students would kind of feel that in response so that we don't have to, oh, I wish you didn't get that email. No, 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 that's fine but we're going to do what we came here to do and they know that they are supported and elevated and part of something bigger than themselves that totally makes the the email and the sender of the email completely insignificant because that's not, we got bigger things, you know, to worry about. Right. I, I kind of feel like that process heals me as I continue to move forward and really think about how to contribute, you know, to, to others who are coming after me too. Absolutely. Nicole. I would say um, definitely following those lines of thought, my faith, um, my family, uh, my students who are able to give me life. So what I mean by that, of course, I'm living, but there are students who, who enter into my space that challenge me to think more critically about what I'm doing and more so why I'm doing it. And when I'm able to have those candid, frank conversations with them and then bring them together, um, it, it, it bolsters my spirit. And I think that we need these injections um, on a daily basis because sometimes it is, the, the, as they say, the struggle is real. And whatever that struggle <laughs> may be, um, but I, I believe that when you have students around you who are like that, um, that sense the urgency, who understand that this is bigger than what's happening here at, in this classroom or in this space or at this university, and they're able to talk to you and help you think about things and then vice versa, that for me feeds my soul. And um I think in the past, I would say in the past, probably in the past three or four years, I've been able to create that space. Um, so informally, I have a work group of uh, women that I work with, young women, um, in the academy. And it, I'm 
I'm just joyful when I meet with them. I don't know. I can't describe it, but it's like, ooh, this is why I'm in the academy. This Mm -hmm. makes me feel good. Um, And they just, I don't know, they just nurture my soul. And then on top of that, my faith is just like, ooh, I'm having a really great day today. So I (laughs) I think that those types of experiences, while they may not exist, and I think sometimes we have to remember that we have to create them for ourselves. If right. we want to feel like we are um, giving all that we can and getting all that we can. So that, that for me has been instrumental in the past couple of years. Well, I just want to say thank you to all of you for um, your time and entering um, this space, uh, being vulnerable, having this uh, very enriching conversation, um, especially as we move forward to try to uh, transform this field, this work, decolonize our institutions um, and create more space for um, black scholars and scholars of color and practitioners to really remake this space in a time that it needs some transformation. So much love. Thank you all for um, your time and let's figure out ways to continue to partner and and build um, this healing space together. So um, we had a really lengthy conversation, so we won't have too much time to to spend sort of uh, debriefing it, but just quick thoughts uh, from, uh, from, our conversation with uh, our scholars. I mean, my first quick thought is thanks for doing it. Thanks for gathering those people. I think we were saying before the call that I felt like I was eavesdropping on something really powerful and intimate, and it was um, pretty amazing. But my real takeaway is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is how do we teach people different ways of being, um, ways of being that we can take from other cultures and really think about. And I think that has to do with Um, how we live our lives, but also how we do higher education and how we do the practice. So they talked a lot about, you know, um, contemplative practice and more vulnerability and things like that. And I, I just, that really spoke to me and I think it's an important, and as they put it, urgent priority. I was struck by something maybe, I guess, at sort of a meta level, which is just, you know, when we um, talk about, essentially changing the faces at the table. I think historically we've had, you know, what you might think of as an affirmative action frame on that, which has been grounded initially in the argument that uh, people of color have faced discrimination. And so we have to take affirmative action to level the playing field. And that's, of course, a true argument. And there's ongoing evidence that there is continuing discrimination based on race and employment and education and housing, all sorts of domains. But I'm glad that we are shifting to, I, I would say, more of an inclusion frame, which is is based on the fact that when you change the people who are around the table, different ideas are at the table, different ways of understanding the same contexts or uh, kind of introductions of new contexts and the ideas that emerge out of those. And I just think like 
you know, the conversation that we we listened to is a very different conversation from what you would have if you assembled a group of white scholars. And that's the point, right? That like there is learning to be had that we lose out on when we don't constantly put the pressure on. And we know from, again, looking at continuing data that, you know, conference panels are often excessively male and excessively white. And there's all sorts of similar things. And, and the point is, we collectively lose out white people, men lose out on the knowledge that people of color, women bring to the table when we don't push back consistently against that. Um, and so this this conversation just reminded me of that because of the ways in which it was evident to me that, you, you know, I was listening to ideas that, you again, you wouldn't hear if you are listening to a group of white male scholars talking about their lives, their work. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that also stood out for me in the conversation with them is is also also the additional labor that comes from right doing this and how oftentimes that's not recognized and or there's more a, of a burden put um, on either students of color, faculty of color, staff of color to do that additional education or take that additional time. And so the, the ways that we're um, we create recognition for that and space and acknowledgement of that additional labor, I think is important because if not, we're just continuing the exploitation and just um, appropriating ideas without adequately giving recognition um, and to support for the people who are are doing them, especially within environments that can oftentimes be um, toxic for for folks or uh, trauma inducing or, you know, all of these things that, um, higher ed is oftentimes for people of color in the academy so it can be i think it can be toxic for a lot of people and that's mm-hmm. another reason that hearing the, the voices and the different ways of being is so incredibly important absolutely yeah no and you know just also um the magic of the connection that you could hear um, as they were talking and be like, oh, you know, and some some of them knew each other, some of them didn't. But I think um, the idea of expanding the circle and the opportunities that we have, especially as Campus, campus Compact, to, to do that. It's an important role we play. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the other thing that sort of popped out to me is if we if we believe that engaged scholarship and engaged teaching are essential tools, it's very clear that uh, people coming from backgrounds, whether first generation college students, uh, people from communities of color, uh, people coming out of low income communities, they are often the people who most clearly understand why forms of scholarship that take seriously community knowledge, community voice, community participation are important. And so it's just from a very sort of strategic standpoint about building allies and building uh, kind of power to change the institutions. Uh, You know, these are the groups with whom we need to be joining together to mobilize that action. A hundred percent. I really, we need to dig into that more on a future podcast. I mean, I know we just, you know, did, did a survey of our own staff and figured out how more, what I think it was more than half our first generation were first generation college students. About 40%. Uh, yeah. Close to half. Um, I think there's a lot to that, to the people who come most naturally to to this kind of work, this kind of way of doing things. And I'd love to talk about that a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, in honor of Black History Month and our uh, amazing uh, scholars, I just want to say um, thank you uh, for uh, sharing with us in the Compact Nation um, your thoughts, your experience, uh, and your work. Yes, for the vulnerability. Appreciate it. So if you have any comments, questions, or ideas, you can reach us at podcast.compact.org or find us on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. And if you're a fan, which we hope you are, uh, don't forget to rate us and review us on iTunes or any podcast listening platform that you use. Thanks so much. And until next time. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.